Hello and welcome to Deprogrammed on Unsafe Space uh, with Carter and Carrie. If it's your first time here, we are um, Deprogrammed is a show that we do that focuses specifically on social justice ideology. And some days we are lucky enough to get to interview people. Today we're interviewing a friend of mine I've been trying to meet uh, on camera and get on the show for a while. Uh, his name is Tim Dukeman. He has a master's degree in political science from the University of Memphis and attended the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, you can find him on Facebook at Timothy Dukeman, D-U-K-E-M-A-N, and we'll put all of this information in the description for the video. Um, I'm really excited to talk to him because as a recent Christian, I am interested. There's a lot that I don't know about the Southern Baptist Convention and Proposition Resolution 9 that passed. And Tim has been very active on these issues. So welcome, Tim. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so I'm curious about what your uh, denominational background is. If, are you not SBC right now? No, I was raised Southern Baptist in okay. South Carolina. And then I basically walked away from God uh, starting at the age of maybe 15 or 16. It was like a three-year process. And then I was agnostic for about 20 years. Uh, I, I, and my okay. religion, actually, my religion was social justice ideology for the, that yeah. time period. And so currently I go to a non-denominational church and um, it's, uh, it's awake. It's not woke. And okay. uh, yeah. And Carter, Carter, my co-host, Carter Laren, who's sitting here. Hello, Carter. Howdy. Carter is an atheist, but what's your background, Carter? You used to be. I grew up in, uh, actually, I've had a survey of almost every Protestant denomination possible. Um, wow. We, we were Presbyterian, Lutheran, Methodist, Baptist, like various uh, forms of Baptist. Uh, I grew up in a... a, a family that became, we'll say, increasingly fundamentalist until we actually split off from all churches and founded our own church. Uh, oh, wow. And uh, and then I became an atheist, <laughs> much to family's chagrin, I believe. So, But uh, like Jordan Peterson, uh, I have a lot of appreciation for, uh, I'll say, the Christian tradition and its role in founding Western okay. civilization. So um, that's, you know, I'll, I'll be less... In this conversation, I'll probably be less uh, familiar with a lot of the the inner workings of of the Christian Church and the SBC. But I I'm very curious about how you guys can help stop it from becoming a social justice warrior factory, which is pretty concerning. For sure. So. So why don't we start with um, beforehand? Carter was asking you a question about the well. Well, let's back up. We were, we were talking about Resolution 9. Mm -hmm. Now, as someone who's a pretty new Christian and who a long time ago was raised Southern Baptist, the Southern Baptist faith or denomination is one that I was shocked to find has um, been facing uh, like this this infiltration of social justice ideology. Mm -hmm. I would have assumed just, uh, I don't know, based on my, my history, my experience with it when I was younger, that it would be the last place where I would see it crop up. Mm -hmm. So uh, maybe I don't know enough about the where the Southern Baptist um, world is at, but can you tell us a little bit about resolution number nine for anyone who doesn't know? Yeah, um, I, I think it would be helpful to actually back up and okay. end up there. Uh, let, let me give you guys a little bit of the history of the SBC. Okay. So the Southern Baptist Convention was actually initially founded because 
um, basically Southern Baptist people like in the South, the SBC was created out of a basically a split in the Baptists in America between the SBC and then the Northern Baptists. And the SBC was founded because the Southern Baptists wanted to leave room for people who own slaves to be missionaries. And so slavery was kind of there at the beginning. Wow. Um, Okay. And the SBC had been on the wrong side of many um, issues, especially racial issues, for a long time. Um, more recently, they, many prominent Southern Baptists were on the wrong side of Jim Crow and segregation and those arguments during the Civil Rights Movement. But the thing to keep in mind is back in the 50s and 60s, when the SBC was basically um, – out in many ways either allowing or, or in some ways um, even supported racism in, in some softer ways. Like they were never like full Ku Klux Klan or anything like that, but they were they were not they were not anti-racist in the, the classical sense at all. Um, but back then the convention was very much controlled by the left. Um, so the, this is what people don't understand. The, the, the impression is that the SBC is this conservative stalwart denomination and always has been. But the fact is that until actually quite recently, the SBC was, was always a liberal denomination. Um, what happened was, is in the 70s, there was a conservative resurgence where the, the conservatives basically took over the convention. They won several SBC presidential elections in a row, and they were able to change the trustees of all the denominational entities and replace liberals with conservatives. And so that happened over a 10 to 12 year period. Uh, the culmination of this was probably when Albert Mueller took over the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is the SBC's flagship, flagship seminary, and he fired or um, a, a, about 96% of the faculty either was fired or resigned um, in the, the early years of Mueller's tenure at SBTS, because that's how liberal the denomination so, was. Wait, let me make sure I understand this. You're saying until the 1970s, it, the SBC was a pretty liberal organization. Absolutely. Do you, yes. Do you mean liberal in terms like how do you define that in terms of uh, uh, looking at the Bible or uh, yes, the or especially they were very theologically liberal. So okay. there were there were professors and at, at um, Southern Baptist seminaries who would deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They they were doing old school oh, like nineteenth wow. century Schleierlock Schleiermacher liberalism if that makes or Boldman or all those guys who basically what they did was they mythologized the Bible and they replaced. Um, these were real historical events that really happened, and the Bible actually tells us what actually happened with these are myths that have provide a spiritual allegory for what what actually happened. And so that was the reigning orthodoxy within the SPC, especially at the elite level. I, I, I don't know if you, you would say like every individual church was liberal, but many, many of them were because all the seminaries were liberal. And so the, the, the pastors that were, were that were coming out of the SBC seminaries were very liberal. And so until the, the seminary started getting more conservative, and this really didn't happen until the 90s, um, you didn't see the, the SBC actually become like a, an authentically conservative denomination. That's a, that's a very recent development, actually, historically. The process, I would say, started in the, in the late 70s with the election of Adrian Rogers as SBC president. But, but the SBC was very liberal uh, all the way through the civil rights movement and that, that whole time period with Jim Crow. So th this is why it's so ridiculous when liberals try to pretend that they that they were on the wrong side and like it was those conservatives who were against integration and that that's just not true. Can we just I just want to tease something out when you say they're liberal with respect to their interpretation of the Bible, 
how does that mm-hmm. translate to political? So they were politically, they were left, they were on the left politically or no? Um, I don't think that that would be necessarily fair. Um, it's important to understand that, like, so the, the one of the most important concepts in, in doing historical study is the concept of, of anachronism. So anachronism is when you take a current re- reality and project it back into the past and assume that in some way it must have always been like this. And it doesn't allow for the fact that sometimes you can just have seismic changes. Um, And so what's happening, I I studied political science, and this was a big uh, thing in the American politics literature, that until actually pretty recently, around 2000, somewhere in the range of 2005 to 2010, the political parties were were actually pretty close together ideologically. Um, And so there there wasn't, the, the country by virtue of the parties was was much less polarized back then so you didn't have theological liberals and political liberals being the same people in the same way that you you would have now like now it's almost unheard of for a theological liberal to not also be politically liberal there are some theological conservatives who are politically liberal most of them i would argue are in transition to being theologically liberal but it's possible um but yeah, th- those categories don't map onto the '60s and '70s as cleanly as they do today. Um, so there, th- basically, it was I would say politically muddled in many ways. And the Dixiecrats, being the Southern Democrats, being a major force in American politics at the time, also muddies this thing because they were, in some sense, conservative Democrats um, uh, that m- m- many of the racists would have voted for. Um, were the Dixiecrats part of the, were they involved in SBC or are they just kind of two separate entities or is it just totally messy? Um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're very much disconnected. I, I would say that a lot, a lot of the people who supported segregation would have been voting for Dixiecrats back in that time period. So, okay. yeah, I mean, they would have been Democratic voters, but that wouldn't mean the same thing that it means now exactly. And the, the Democratic, basically the, the, the Democratic Party effectively had a civil war, um, over the period from like about 1955 to about 1970. Um, and yeah, there was, there was a lot of struggle for the soul of the party in a sense. Um, so there, there were very diverse coalitions. And also, like one of the most important things I think about this time period to understand is that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 completely changed the moral conscience of America. People didn't decide that discriminating on the basis of race was bad effectively until the law changed. Like, this is why it's so silly for so many people to argue that culture is downstream from politics. There is a sense in which that's true, that the culture tends to leave the political realm in some cases. But in many more cases, the the law actually leads the culture. And you saw this with gay marriage. Once gay marriage became legal, the law changed people's minds on, on gay marriage, the, the issue of gay marriage. Oh, that's interesting, because Carter and I often say the opposite. Carter and I say, you know, politics is downstream from culture. You're right. saying you're saying that culture can sometimes be downstream to, from politics. I think it's more often downstream from politics, actually. Oh, really? Um, okay. Yes, I, I think there are like so, like I think both sides of this debate have a have have their case studies that they can point to um, that support their side really well. I think there are more on the side of the law changing people's minds, especially the Civil Rights Act and, and gay marriage. I think are, are two really powerful examples because you see basically if you like in the survey data. If you ask somebody, is it okay for people to discriminate on the basis of race in 1960, and then you ask them again in 1970, you would get wildly different answers. And those people, like, 
were mostly they mostly changed because the law changed and people in many ways like this is the thing that the mistake that i think most intellectuals make is that most intellectuals think that an average person is like them but like slightly less intellectual and that's not really true like most most people are not going out and like defining their ethical system they get their ethics from the law in many ways in many many ways yeah. like they're they're uh, like and not that like people never use any kind of ethical reasoning if they're not intellectuals but it's just not that sophisticated it's not that intellectually consistent but like people are, are complicated and messy when, when i think of yeah. of culture being upstream of politics though i i the caveat is uh i think a large portion of the culture is our sheep and so Mm -hmm. uh, I view right. it as like there is a cultural movement, which might not be a majority cultural movement that that mostly among I'll, I'll say actually the uh, the academy and the, like the cultural inst the institutions that matter culturally that can then uh, that needs to happen first before the law gets passed. Then a law gets passed and then the sheep follow the law and that may very well then become more mainstream culture. So I'm not sure I would argue right. mainstream culture is upstream of politics but most of mainstream culture right. is do, doesn't actually have its own cultural compass i think is what you're saying as well yeah no i think that's a that's a good way of like a good way of synthesizing my argument with yours yeah that that there's if you look at the elites the elites are tend to be have an outside influence on the law and on the culture um and that that can lead to swings in the mass culture yeah i, I think that's a, that's a fair point yeah. um well, why don't you catch but, us yes. back up? Catch us. Let's go back to SBC. Uh, so yeah. we've we've gone through. There's the you're about you're describing the transition where conservatives kind of took over the SBC, right? right. So yeah. What next? So basically, what happened was is that the over time after winning consecutive um, presidential races in the SBC at the annual, annual conventions and electing conservative candidates, they were able to replace the trustees, and and as a result, the trustees were able to replace the seminary presidents. And then after the seminary presidents replaced by the trustees, the seminary presidents replaced the professors. And after the professors were replaced by the seminary professor or presidents, then they finally started churning out conservative graduates. And that okay. happened, I would say, for about 15 years, give or take. And then the professors started getting more liberal because the SBC uh, seminary professors presidents got, I, I would say, started sliding to the left in response to cultural pressure, um, most notably Albert Mueller and Danny Aiken at Southeastern. Um, so the, Wait, who they, is that? Albert? Albert Mueller. He's a pre pre the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and then Danny Aiken's at Southeastern. Um, they would be, the, I would say, the two um, most prominent presidents who started out much more conservative and then got more liberal. The same thing also happened to Russell Moore, uh, who is the, the president of the ELRC, um, which is basically the the Southern Baptist lobbying arm. Um, okay. And Russell Moore has effectively become the guy that liberals call when they want a conservative person to bash other conservatives. That's that's what Russell Moore is. He he he's very much a, a tool of the Democratic Party at this point. Well, he won't he won't admit that, but that's what that's what he does. Um, and so, but the thing is that Russell Moore, back in the early 2000s, was writing all this incredible conservative stuff. Like, you would have thought he was the second coming of John MacArthur back in 2005. But as soon as he got 
a, a job where he didn't have oversight and didn't have to basically he, he had no uh, constraints on him. He, he went way left. Um, and so basically what's happened is that over the last seven, eight, nine years, uh, the SBC has started sliding to the left pretty significantly. Um, and that's happened at the seminary, le seminary level with some of the professors who have been hired. Um, that's happened at the, the seminary president level. Um, and this really, I would say, culminated, I think crested more than likely, with Resolution 9. So Resolution 9 is a, it's a, it's a resolution. Technically, it's non-binding, but resolutions are effectively where the, the annual convention expresses like the, the position of the nomination on a particular issue. Um, okay. So it's, they can't like kick you out for not subscribing to a resolution but it's like basically an official statement of the denomination. And so what Resolution 9 said was that um, crit critical race theory is, they, they, they did say that it has to be um, underneath scripture, but it's a, they, they described it as a useful analytical tool uh, for understanding the world. Um, and so if you read it apart from any historical context, um, you could say that it's not that liberal of a resolution, like just looking at the text completely in a vacuum. Um, but the fact is that what, what we've had for the last several years is we've had SBC uh, professors teaching critical race theory as, um, as basically the, the way that you live out Christian doctrine is to um, check your privilege and fight against systemic racism and do political activism um, and support Black Lives Matter. Like that's basically been where what the, these professors have been pushing, and they would they would never admit that their politics are overriding their doctrine or overriding scripture. Right. But effectively, but they are. Yeah. They, look, I will say as someone who was in it, and Carter and I have talked about this before. So for any viewers who are returning, you've heard me say this. But it can one of these has to. They're writing this resolution with the assumption uh, that's a that's that's a good faith interpretation and assumption that you can put this ideology underneath scripture. Right. Um, but I think more than likely some of them know that you can't, and they're just trying to get it in there by saying it should be under scripture. You ca right. you can't. This ideology is a primary foundational ideology. It you can't have two primary foundational ideologies. Right. And it conflicts. It conflicts with so. It conflicts with the gospel. Social justice gospel conflicts with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you can't have one. The, you, the gospel is necessarily going to be perverted as it gets filtered through this, yeah. in my opinion. But yeah. um, can we read? Can I just read part of this real quick? Um. From resolution nine, this, mm -hmm. this part because for anybody who doesn't know, this is this blew me away when I read this because they're using the words, they're using the social justice religious words. Um, they say, uh, whereas concerns have been raised by some evangelicals over the use of frameworks such as critical race theory and intersectionality. And whereas critical race theory is a set of analytical tools that explains how race has, has and continues to function in society, and intersectionality is the study of how different personality characteristics overlap and inform one's experience. Um, it, they, they are using the, the cult, what I call the cult speak. So, I mean, it's a red flag right off the bat, mm -hmm. but um, how was this received? Yeah, um... So it was it was a big deal. Um, I, I would say that the resolution nine was 
in, in the short term, it was a huge victory for the left because basically you have the largest Protestant denomination in the world. And by, by a large margin, the SBC is the biggest uh, Protestant denomination in the world. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, it's, there are 15 million people in the SBC. Wow. Uh, so it's a really big deal. These things matter. Um, and that's, what, that's why the left has tried so hard to, that in their march through the institutions to capture the SBC because they know it's a huge prize. Um, and so I would say it's a huge, it was a huge win in the short term for the left because you basically have the largest Protestant denomination endorsing Marxism by name and, and saying that Marxist analysis is useful for understanding the world. And basically, the subtext of that is that you're not going to understand racial issues unless you use the critical race theory analytical tool. That's that's the upshot of the of the statement, and it, it what it what it functions as is a green light to all these liberal professors to teach as much Marxism as they want, as long as they give the disclaimer at the beginning and the end. Well, obviously, this is subordinate structure. We would yeah. never contradict the word of God. What, what what they're doing is they're taking broad biblical categories and just shoving Marxism in there. Um, yeah. Well, and, and at the at the convention, I mean, I I, I watched a, a documentary. I forget. I think it was called "By What Right" or something. I don't remember the name of the documentary. By what standard? Yeah. Yeah, by what standard? That's what it was. And um, you know, at the convention, they there was a proposal to amend the mm-hmm. um, the resolution to make it actually very clear that hey, the philosophical roots of this are at odds with our belief system, and. Right. Um, you know, I actually thought it was kind of generous to just propose amending it and not just not voting for it, like not defeating it. But like, right. hey, how about we amend it to say, you know, mm-hmm. hey, the, these these ideas are at odds. And that amendment was was turned down. And one of the things that really struck me as an outsider was, and I don't mean this in a condescending way, but was the naivete of the people there in terms of like what it was that they were voting for was shocking to me. It was like mm-hmm. it was like yeah. it was like, welcome, Satan. Uh, and I say that as an atheist. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Carter said earlier, he was like, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, this is a total aside and it doesn't matter. I don't know when this is going to air, but uh, I just had the police come to my house because uh, I was bitten by a cat of a, fr- a friend's cat and um, they want to tr- they want to go take my friend's cat away and I didn't want to give them my friend's info and anyway long story short Carter was texting me and he was like don't let them in the police are like vampires they have to be invited in <laughs> you're making people think it's the Marxists at the church just don't let them they're like welcome come on in vamp Marxist vampires well that was yeah. my reaction right when I saw when I watched that <laughs> that convention or the, the documentary about it uh, my reaction was like wow these poor people have no idea who they just invited in their front door. Right. Yeah, I think that's very much true. If you had asked and uh, if you had pulled the people at the the convention and asked them what critical race theory was, I I, I bet one in a hundred maybe could have told you what the what those words mean. Um, that's how it gets in. It sounds good. Yeah. It sounds good. You know. Well, what what it is like. Fundamentally, like the problem with the SBC, the reason that the convention is in a crisis right now is because we have these leaders who have been around for a long time and they're trusted and people just trust them. They, they say, oh, well, Albert Moeller would never let something liberal happen. J.D. Greer is not a liberal because like we, these guys will go on these long di- diatribes about the importance of evangelism and the Great Commission. And they'll say lots of nice conservative things. 
And then when you like go to their church or you see their their activism on online, it's very much focused in the the political realm and towards the left, um, and especially JD Greer. Um, but but that's what what happened is I think the messengers just they they said that they just trusted their leadership and thought that there there must not be anything wrong here. And, and they said they said that, that all these th- tools have to be subordinate to scripture, so it can't be that bad, right? Is, is and, the, was so, the leadership just asleep at the wheel, or or do you think they were complicit? Um, it depends on who we're talking about here. Um, Greer, I, I think, is clearly liberal. Um, he's the president of the SBC right now. J.D. Greer, he's a convinced progressive. You can you can basically line him up on like all of the theological and political controversies in the SBC right now. Greer is going to be on the left of basically every single one. Um, like he has a like a small group leader at his church who's like pr- publicly pro-choice and has like talked about being a, a clinic escort for abortion clinics. I mean, like he, he's very, he's way out on the left. Um, the, the thing that you have to understand here is that what the president does is the president appoints almost everyone important in, uh, on the national level of the SBC. So the whole resolutions committee were people handpicked by J.D. Greer. So if J.D. Greer is a liberal, then the resolutions committee is going to be liberal. And that's why the amendment wasn't received as a friendly amendment by the chairman of the resolutions committee, because because that chairman is a far left political activist. Um, And so his name is Curtis Woods, by the way, who was a at the time was a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So all of these people are really connected um, and they basically are just working together to move the convention to the left. Some of them wittingly and some of them unwittingly. I wouldn't say that like all of the people who are helping the convention move left like necessarily want that, but a lot of them I think are consciously doing that. Like Russell Moore, for example, is a very cynical man. He knows what he's doing. Um, it's not. Like I wouldn't in, say that about everyone. Well, within social justice ideology itself, I see a similar split, and we Car and I've talked about it before. There's roughly two groups of people. Um, you could probably break it down and get more specific than that, but. It's, mm-hmm. e- it's easier for me to think about it as two groups. There are the people who, um, that, that are, they know what it is and they know yeah. it's not what they say it is. And Brett Weinstein, I think has called them like the bad actors. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Jordan Peterson and his grad student have called them, um, they did a whole study about where do these ideas come from and who holds mm-hmm. them. What are the, what are the personality characteristics of an SJW, right? And wow. one of the they divided it into yeah it's a really interesting study they did they said um, you could roughly divide these people into two groups the PC egalitarians or liberals like me that's where yeah. I, that's where I would have fallen in and then yeah. the PC authoritarians mm-hmm. and the PC authoritarians they have some differences from the PC liberals the PC authoritarians are also the ones that I would say Brett Weinstein calls the bad actors they're the ones that know that they're they're more authoritarian in their beliefs. They want to control people. They know this right. is an ideology about control. Um, and then you have the PC liberals, or as Brett Weinstein calls them, the useful tools. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah. those people, those people, that's like that's what I was. I was a useful tool. They are pushing something they don't quite understand. Yep. And so I imagine in the SBC leadership or in the SBC body in general, you've got both types. You've got the ones yeah. who know what this is and who um, are acting in bad faith. And then you've got the people who are acting in good faith, who are just their useful tools for yeah. pushing this forward. Yeah, I yeah. think that's that's a really helpful distinction. And I would say that the the useful tools group in your terminology is, I think, much larger than the bad actors group. Yes. Um, 
And so I, I think that's that's really important to understand is that a lot of these people are if you want to understand how these ideas get into previously conservative denominations and institutions, the, the key is what's called a Mott and Bailey argument. Okay. Are, are you guys familiar with this at all? So a Mott and Bailey, it, it's it's based on the old um, it, it's technically a logical fallacy, but um, it's really a type of argument where you you move the goalposts. Um, so the, in in the old uh, medieval times, there was the Mott, which was the uh, basically the town where the people lived, and it was nice and beautiful, and that's where you wanted to stay most of the time. You, you, like you 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 would want to live there. But the thing about the Mott is that it's not very defensible. Um, there's not it's not fortified. It's it's hard to defend. The Bailey were those towers. I don't know if you remember this, but in uh, medieval times there were these tall towers, and the staircase going up those towers was so skinny that one guy with a spear could fight off a whole army in that tower, because you you couldn't you couldn't go up side by side. Every, you had to go up single file all the way up that staircase, and so it was incredibly well easy to defend. But you would never want to live in that tower. And so right. the, the idea of a Mott and Bailey argument is that you say things that you, you say you say big bombastic things when you're trying to move the needle and and like you have strong rhetoric and that's the Mott. And the Bailey is what you retreat to when you're challenged. Mm-hmm. So basically it like the, the classic example of this is feminism. So feminism in, in modern discourse means that you think women should be fighting on the front lines of combat, you think that transgenderism is is the truth you think that um like the whole the whole thing your pro-abortion all of those things like that's what feminism actually means but whenever so you say well hey feminism believes some weird or liberal stuff they, they always say no feminism just means that men and women have equal dignity and value and that's that's how modern baby it's so ridiculous like it's so that's actually that's really funny because when I was in SJW, I came in through the feminist door of SJWs, and there's a lot of different doors. And uh, that is exactly what I, if somebody told me they weren't a feminist, I would say, oh, but feminism is the simple belief that men and women are equal. They all say it's, a, I think it's even on a bumper sticker. Yeah. Men and women is the radical, oh, men and women, uh, feminism is the radical idea that men and women are equal. Right. <laughs> yeah, which, which now that would be viewed as, unacceptably transphobic or exclusionary of gender ideology (laughs) identity but anyway um yeah but yeah that's what they do is they they make these mott and daily arguments so when you challenge black lives matter the the organization which is a radical openly marxist group they say are you saying that black lives don't matter And that's what that—that's literally the, the the level of discourse so many people in America and in the SBC are having. They're they're falling for these modern daily arguments where, oh, well, critical race theory just means that we think racism is bad and that people shouldn't be racist against other people. And and and, and the other thing, like they do that with the word racism too, because when they say racism, they mean systemic racism that's invisible and just where you have different outcomes between different racial groups. That's what they actually mean by racism. But when they're challenged, they retreat to the, the Bailey up in the tower, and they say, well, well racism, just is, is, like the classical definition of racism, that it's, it's prejudice against pers- someone on the basis of their race. And that's, that's not the conversation we're having. 
Um, And so I think this is how it's gotten in is that um, basically liberals have weaponized the, the guilt that many Southern Baptists feel about their institutional history because the SBC, back when it was liberal, I, I stress again, was on the wrong side of the civil rights movement. Um, and so there's a, there's a desire on the part of SBC leadership to atone for the sins of the past. There's, there was actually a book that Albert Moeller personally commissioned. Uh, it was contributed to by a bunch of Southern Baptist professors. It's called Removing the State of Racism from the SBC. And this book came out in like 2013. It had been like 50 years since the SBC had been in any important sense racist. But but it's still beca- because of Marxist ideology, it's still viewed as the stain that, that is permanently there and, and can only be. And basically what it, what, what it comes down to in Marxist discourse is that you can only remove the stain of racism by constant and endless struggle sessions, like Maoist struggle sessions. That never um, end. Right. Right. And. I, yeah. I really like the Mott and Bailey metaphor. I hadn't heard it before. And it's a it's a much more specific yeah. and vivid way to rather than just saying moving the goalpost. It's a it's a it's a much better yeah. description as, as someone who I know you have a, a deep understanding of uh, both Christianity and Marxism. And, and um, as an outsider, one of the questions I've been asking myself about Christianity is, um is there, when I look at Marxism, one of the, just from a philosophical, from a moral perspective, right, not from the empirical, this is how it's, you know, played out, but just from a moral perspective, one of the most pernicious ideas to me is the idea that um, the collective is is uh, primary and that the individual is uh, secondary to the collective. So, mm-hmm. and, and Marx gets this idea, I think from Hegel, um, who believes that the state basically is the the will of the universe uh, instantiated on on the planet, and and people are yeah. just fodder to make sure the will of the universe is is uh, manifest properly. And to me, and, and the Enlightenment is is basically the opposite idea, which is that the individual is is supreme, mm-hmm. and and groups are collections of individuals, and, uh, and 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 that's where you get the individual rights arguments, morally, and everything else. And when I look at Christianity. Um, I don't see a clear, and maybe I'm wrong, and I just don't know where to look. I don't see a very clear distinction that Christianity philosophically is based on individualism, not collectivism, because I don't see that argument being made by most of the people uh, experiencing this influx of critical race theory, and that's an argument that just undercuts the entire thing altogether. Yeah. Um, so on that point, what I would say is that I think that Christianity uh, has both individual and corporate elements that are um, that are both inescapable and must be included. Um, if you're looking at if you're looking for a clear statement from Christianity that uh, in favor of individualism and excluding collectivism, I think you're going to be. I think you're right. You're going to have a hard time finding it in those ways. Um, I, but I don't think that you you need to go into individualism versus collectivism to reject Marxism as a Christian. I, I like I don't know if the Bible is, is clear in the way that you would prefer it to be clear in this way. Um, but I don't think you have to go there. I think there's plenty of other like the the problem with Marxism is not that it's collectivist. Um, although I do think the collectivism is a problem. I I, I think that the problems with the Marxism are, are dramatically bigger and more more. Um, significant than mere collectivism because there there have been collectivist societies that were not Marxist nightmares. 
Like Marxism is the basically the worst incarnation of collectivism. Why? Why would you say, from a Christian perspective, what are some of those problems, or how does it conflict with Christianity in ways, other ways? Yeah. Um. So Marxism it, it proposes uh, a completely new uh, worldview and a completely new system. So it, in its modern incarnation, the original sin of Marxism is racism. Um, and so they have this original sin that, that is attached to the white race permanently, basically, at this point. And white, white people must endlessly atone. And that's not, that's not remotely reconcilable with Scripture. Scripture is very clear. And this, this does speak a little bit to your point that um, you, you, each man is judged according to his deeds in Scripture. And when it, it, both in this life and in, in the final judgment, like it, it, it says over and over again, like when when speaking about the heaven and hell um, distinction, that each man is judged according to his deeds, not according to someone else's deeds. And so, in that way, Christianity is very individualistic, and in and there's no way to reconcile this sort of class guilt of Marxism with that. Even mm-hmm. though there is, I, I would say that like in Christianity, there can be class responsibility in some sense that you could have a covenant people who have like an obligation to purge the the evil one from among them like that like like a church is a good example if you have someone who is living in sin unrepentantly you have an obligation to remove that person from the assembly but that's Um, not collectivism that's community right there's a difference between those two things philosophically collectivism is the primacy of the group not the fact that groups exist and voluntarily have shared values right yeah uh, yeah i guess we, we we should be more clear on our terms here um but yeah that's interesting yeah so I, I guess what I would say is that I don't think Christianity gives you the option of either the most intense form of collectivism or the most intense form of individualism. Um, I think Christianity is in the middle, that, that you have responsibilities to other people, but also the, the group. And this is, I think, another way that, that Marxism is irreconcilable with Christianity, is that Marxism basically says that victim classes are not responsible for their own actions. I mean, I had a... Like, like I had a conversation with a, a professor at Southern uh, about um, he was talking about systemic racism and white privilege. And I said, well, how much of this do we think is due? Uh, like and he was talking about how overall, like the, the life outcomes for black people are much worse than white people in America. And, he, and obviously that must be racism, according to Marxism. And I said, well, how much of that do we think is because of the fact that the illegit- illegitimacy rate in the black community is 72 percent? So seven out of ten kids are growing up without a father. How much of the, of, the, of these life outcome differences are that? And and he basically argued that that the illegitimacy rate was a product of racism. Well, if and that were true, argument. it would be higher post-slavery, and it would have gone down the farther we got away from slavery, not the other way around. Yes. Right, especially after after Jim Crow was ended and, right. and the Civil Rights Act passed, so like it'd be impossible for it to have gone up, and that's exactly what happened. Yep. Is that the sexual revolution is what is what created the the sky high black illegitimacy rate? It wasn't. It had nothing to do with racism. There's no like serious historical arguments that that these these issues are connected in that way. But that that is the argument that Marxists make: is that if a victim class is is doing something bad, like you look at criminality, for example, um, it must be because society is biased against them, um, and that. Society has forced them into this sort of desperation in which they make these bad choices. Um, and 
I mean, maybe there's, the, there's some kernel of truth there. I, I don't want to say that, like, people who grow up in harder situations are going to ha be more, I think, more tempted to, to a life of crime or whatever, um, or more tempted to make self-destructive choices to hold them back in line. But that's not a Christian view. Like, a, a Christian view is that each man is judged according to his deeds. And so, yeah, you just, you can't reconcile them. There, there's no way to put them together. What was that part? Can you, you said the Christian view is that each man, what? Is judged according to his deeds. Judged according to his deeds. Right. right. There's a, a, a whole chapter in Ezekiel where it says that the son shall not die for the sins of the father. Each man will pay for his own sins. Right. And that's the, the, the constant refrain throughout the whole chapter. The, we've got a whole chapter of the Bible devoted to this issue. That you cannot punish someone for the sins of a completely different person. Um, yeah. Even if it's that if, that, if it's that own person's father, you can't do that. That's unjust. Which and is that's, clearly that's really the. I mean, that's that's clearly anti-critical race theory. Like that's the that's the yes. whole that that's anti everything that they're they're arguing for. Right. Um, so I mean, I think the thing that people need to remember, though, and maybe you can elaborate on this, but the thing that people need to remember about these theories is they are not. First of all, they're not analytical tools. Um, mm -hmm. And second of all, they are, I believe that just from a philosophical standpoint, they're dishonestly derived because they're derived from a uh, political motivation. They're, 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 assuming mm -hmm. the, uh, they're assuming that the result that they want is the correct result, which is some form of neo-Marxism. And so mm -hmm. um, all of this has been, these are, these are arguments and ways of looking at the world built with one purpose in mind, get to Marxism, um, get to a version of Marxism. It's not that these were honest people saying, gee, I wonder what is right and wrong in the world and how do we reconcile problems between different groups of people and how do we atone for past sins and what's the best way for people to, to live together as a community and move forward and oh gee, that happens to be Marxism, I guess that's where we'll go. It's the reverse of that, yeah. it's we have to go to yeah. Marxism what the hell can we say to justify it? Which is why they pull in a lot of postmodernist nonsense because you can justify anything with right. that. Yeah, and and I think that it's important to remember that um, the like the people embracing Marxism are their their goal is political power specifically. They want power. Power is the point of the movement. Um, yeah. It's not, and that's why they use words like hegemony all the time. Because hegemony is the ability to exert your will on someone else. And so um, one of the most famous um, Marxists in the Christian community, is his name is Jamar Tisby. Um, and he was, he was actually a, a professor at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary. And uh, for a while, he, he ended up publicly leaving evangelicalism behind. And he did this because... Um, he was tired of having to justify his support for the Democratic Party to evangelicals. That, because the fact is that we're at a point now where the parties are so far apart. And on all of the, the Christian social issues, the Democrats are wrong and the Republicans are either right or ambivalent. <laughs> um, and yeah, so we're, we're at a point now where if you have a Christian worldview and not a Marxist worldview, the, the voting choice is very obvious. Even like a, uh, I would say Albert Moeller at this point is probably a center left liberal at this point. Um, he says lots of conservative things and does lots of liberal things. Um, but Albert Moeller even said that he's going to be voting 
Republican for president for the rest of his life because the the Democratic Party has just gotten so radical. And so we're at a point now where if you want to have any claim to being a conservative Christian at all, voting Democrat is a complete non-starter. And so that's why Marxism has has become so popular among the the, the politically liberal Christians is because it's the only way to exert enough pressure to get people who otherwise would never vote Democrat to vote Democrat. And, and, and I say this because like what, what they consistently do is they use their platforms to promote Democratic politicians. Um, so Thibi Yanabule is, uh, he's a Southern Baptist pastor and he um, has a big platform. He's spoken at the T4G conference, which is a huge conference. They have like 12,000 people every, t- every time. Um, and he's spoken there many times. He, he's on the Gospel Coalition. He used his blog as a campaign art of the Hillary Clinton campaign. He, 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 he ran an article called Pastors Tell Us to Vote for Hillary. Wait, what's his, the name? The <laughs> what's his name? The BD Anya Wigley. Um, Can you spell his first name? T-H-A-B-I-T-I. It's okay. just like it sounds. Okay, got um, it. But maybe yeah, he's, he, no, uh, in fairness, maybe he's just allergic to suicide. Ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, ha ha, I see what you did there. Oh, you man. mean support, supporting Clinton? That's a Clinton joke? I get it. It's a Clinton joke. <laughs> but yeah, that, that, so, sorry, that, Tim, that's where we're at now, is that we have these, these people who can't find any other way. So race has become basically the cudgel to, to beat down conservatives, especially Baptists, because they have that checkered past with, with the race issue. Um, to, and they basically say, if you don't vote Democrat, you just don't care about black people. That's, I, that's basically the argument. I have to say, okay, this, this I haven't thought this out beforehand, so I don't know if this is going to lead to good conversation or not. <laughs> but when I started to discover some of these pastors who are preaching my old religion, social justice mm-hmm. ideology, I was so thoroughly sickened and mm-hmm. I almost can't. So, like, you're giving me the names of these guys, and I'm looking them up, and I almost can't bear to look at what they're tweeting, mm-hmm. because it bothers me so much more than when I see someone who is not a Christian preaching it. Yes. It bothers me so much more because right. they're mingling it with the Word of God and they're pretending like this is the Word of God, and it makes me yeah. sick to my stomach. It's like a perversion of God's Word. It just seems right. so sacrilegious to me, and mm-hmm. so um, offensive and. And like taking the Lord's name in vain is what it is. You're using the Lord's name mm. to put 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 the Lord's seal of approval on this mm. evil belief system. And <clears throat> so, excuse me, <clears throat> it's not COVID, guys. But <laughs> sure, Karen. Um, but yeah. So I have a question. I, I I'm a new Christian. I don't know what I think about some of these things. I I, I tend to think that um, like. Sin is something that we are all going to, obviously, we're human, and we all battle sin, and you you can't conquer it, but you can try not to live in it, right? Mm -hmm. And you can try to, it's it's an exercise to not live in it, something you have to try and practice every day. And I do believe that some people can be caught up in a repetitive um, uh, cycle of sin, but still be a Christian and still be maybe not having communication with God anymore. But I, I, what do you think about people who are, I look at someone like this and I'm like, you are promoting evil in the name of God. Like, 
it's not my job to judge that person and say if they're Christian or not. But mm-hmm. at, at the same time, yeah, maybe maybe I shouldn't have gone down this route because that is what I'm asking. <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm asking you to do is to judge them. But would you not. judge them, please, Tim? Go. <laughs> yeah, Never mind. Um, I, I think that it's it can be very difficult to see Christian people doing bad things and saying bad things. And in, in many ways, like I think the best way to understand the, the movement of Marxism into Christianity is as a form of syncretism. Are you guys familiar with the, that terminology no. at all? I'm so not. syncretism is basically where you take a religion and then you take another religion and you just kind of mash them together and you try to pretend that really they're the same religion, but they're not. Um, and so you're basically trying to hold things together that can't be held together. Um, and that's really what the, the Christian Marxist project is, is to try, to try to pretend that what they do is they take these broad commands like love your neighbor as yourself. And then they tell you that the way to obey that command is to do Marxism and to support Marxist political ideology. And that's what they do. And um, and so I think the thing to keep in mind here is that we can have a broad view. Some of these people are literally antichrists uh, in the like little a antichrist sense, not in the beast of revelation, but <laughs> they're, they're antichrists and they are, they're actively leading people away from God. Um, and some of them are people who are actual Christians who have been deceived and will, and later on they will, they will think better of it and repent. Um, and some of those people who are currently preaching Marxism will be in heaven with us someday. And so I think we need to be able to have a long view and say, I don't always know which person is which. You're right. Um, and so the, 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 the key here is to rebut the false teaching, especially, and, and make it about the teaching as much as you can. And in some case about the, the people, if you're talking in an institutional sense, like the media should not be in the SBC. He should have been removed from the domination um, be, <laughs> because he's so liberal. Um, and, and many of the people, like we're at the point now where, where many of these, uh, like there, there's a prominent liberal who said that if Resolution 9 was rescinded, he would leave the nomination. Well, that just shows me that he shouldn't be in the nomination right now. Um, so, so there's a sense in which, like, we, we have to make decisions in the temporal sense of, um, like, what are we going to do with these people? But we, in terms of the eternal sense, we can be humble and, and recognize that our knowledge is limited. Yeah. Uh, and, do you and think also just, inevitable like, remember then? our own past. So, sorry, sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah. But just also remember our own past. I mean, like, I used to believe all sorts of crazy, dumb, idiotic stuff, um, I used to be in, in, caught in the snare of the devil before I was supernaturally delivered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so I, I think that's the, the, the posture we have to be able to have as much as possible. As Christians. Mm-hmm. Yes. And Carter, thank you. Carter, Carter's the most tolerant atheist I know. <laughs> he allows me to have these discussions and he doesn't no. snark on me it's cool I, I'm actually curious about do you think that there's going to be a split in the SBC because it seems um, it seems to me I know a lot of people have for a lot of institutions people see this social justice convergence kind of thing and they assume mm-hmm. that there's some way to come out holding hands and singing kumbaya because after all we all want the same thing and right. i don't know if i'm just a pessimist but i look at it and go no there's going to be a split so do the split now and create the institution that is explicitly anti-social justice and good people will follow you and hopefully eventually more mm-hmm. people will go to you your side what do you think is going to happen with the sbc 
Yeah, I think there's no way there's no way to avoid a civil war in the SPC that ends in the split. That's going to happen. There's no there's no getting around it. Either the conservatives or the liberals are going to leave. One of the two. Um, my goal is as a conservative to make the liberals leave. <laughs> I would like to hang on to the hundreds of millions of dollars of assets that the domination currently controls. I'd like to hang on to the seminaries because those are very, very valuable. That's very valuable terrain. This is a hill to die on for sure. Um, but yes, there's definitely going to be a split because the fact is that the Bionne Bule and Dwight McKissick and J.D. Greer and those guys, like, they are not going to be in a denomination with people like me long term. They're just not. It's not going to happen. One of us is going. And the goal is it's going to be a fight for the, the, the soul of the SBC of which which side's going to get kicked out. Because that's basically what happened in the, the first conservative resurgence. I would argue we're now seeing the beginnings of the second conservative resurgence. Um, but basically, all the liberals left and they, they created the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, which is a tiny, insignificant denomination that's dying. Um, and it's dying because they have liberal theology. And liberal theology is basically just liberal politics with some spiritual stuff sprinkled on top. And eventually people figure out Everything I'm getting from this church, I can get from a Black Lives Matter chapter meeting. And That's so they what, just, they just stop yeah. going to church because there's, no, there's no point. There's no point. And I actually, yeah, I fully believe these churches will die because, mm-hmm. well, just like in a company or any organization, we, Carter and I have talked about this, this before, when my old ideology, when social justice ideology infiltrates and converges, which is where it takes over, it necessarily subverts whatever the primary purpose of that organization was. If it was a right. church, the primary purpose being witnessing to people about the gospel of jesus christ Mm -hmm. if it's if it's a company like red bull the primary purpose being selling red bull you know but whatever it is it subverts it to this hey red bull's protecting itself better than the church though let's just give credit where credit's due i know yeah (laughs) we just saw that news red bull's doing a better job of keeping the vampires out than the southern baptist convention (laughs) it's so sad it's so sad but um but so, so I necessarily think once the primary purpose, the primary purpose has been subverted, then you're going to lose people, and it it's it it basically is like a parasite that comes in and sucks yep. all the resources, sucks everything dry, sucks all the resources dry, sucks all the purpose out of the thing, and then it kills it. It kills the host. It kills the host, and people will leave. Like when I first came to church, I was looking for God. I wasn't looking for social justice ideology. And when people started recommending these social justice kind of churches to me i was really taken aback like wait this is in the church now i mean i know i was naive but i was like first no first of all i can't believe it's in the church and second of all no that's not why i came here Mm -hmm. you know um i think the only way for these liberal churches and denominations to survive long term is one they could just go full politics and be like literally (laughs) an arm of the democratic party two if they took over the culture, if cancel culture continues to metastasize, mm-hmm. then I think you could see some of these churches um, continue to exist because it, it's like in have you if you've heard the story from the poor and the powerless that that old book um, yeah. basically like these shop owners would put um, banners in their windows saying "Workers of the World Unite" and they did that because that was much easier than. Than dealing with all of the blowback and all of the persecution they were going to face if they didn't. And so if, it's, it's if like putting a Black Lives just, Matter banner in your store right now, which people do as it's protection money, right. basically. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, by becoming Black Lives Matter, in a sense, like these churches might persist that way. Um, 
but there there won't be apart from if Black Lives Matter blows up, that's it. For, and and I think that we're going to see that happen. I I don't think that Black Lives Matter is the kind of organization that can survive long term. In the same way, like the Women's March already blew up, right? Um, They're already having these civil wars and power struggles. Um, Because, and and that's the thing is that, like, if your goal is to attain power and not, like, actually advance a cause, like, uh, having a cause is very, very secondary to getting power in these Marxist movements. And so, if power is the goal, I mean, eventually you're going to start a war over power. And that's why the communists, like, killed each other. And when you got a new communist dictator, they killed all the old ones. Um, and they killed anyone who could possibly be a threat. And so that's the kind of thing you're going to see. Um, and they're going to can't, there's, they're going to start canceling each other here soon. Um, if, if, and in some ways that's already happened, but like, did you see the, the museum curator in San Francisco who got fired because he, he said that they were, would still obviously be willing to accept art from white artists. I did see that. (laughs) Yeah. Because he said that he was white men. From right. white men, and because they're still willing to accept art from white men, he was fired. Yes. Wow. And, and it's, it's and, the French Revolution all over again. Like that's the thing is that Marx has his intellectual heritage in Rousseau, and Rousseau was the the ideological foundation of the French Revolution. And so, cancel culture is basically the the reign of terror played out with losing your job instead of getting your head chopped off by a guillotine. It's so funny you bring that up because we talk about the history of the Soviet Union a lot, but I just recently watched a documentary about the history of the French Revolution, and I thought, oh my gosh, there's so many parallels here that I just hadn't thought of before, but you're right. And they try to replace the interesting thing about um, how how they also, during the reign of terror, they got rid of all the uh, Christian symbology, and they tried to create their own deity called the Supreme being was it the supreme being? Yeah, the the goddess of pure reason or yeah uh, something like that. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. No, it's it's amazing how quickly like these. Uh, did you see the video of all the all these white people like getting down on their knees and raising their hands up like they're in worship and like renouncing their white privilege and everything? And I'm like, this is a tent revival. Like that's what they're yeah. doing. Yeah, <laughs> it is a tent revival. Yeah. <laughs> We're basically seeing right now a third Great Awakening, except it's not a Christian Great Awakening; it's a Marxist Great Awakening. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's what we're seeing, like all all these videos of people just responding religiously to 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 these um to these Marxist teachings and uh, these Marxist promoters. Um, but yeah, it it's very much a, a religious thing, and that's why I say it's a syncretism when they try to get it into Christianity because it, it is its own religion. With right. its own dogma, its own chivalrous um, right. liturgy, you, I think is the word, right? That, that its own rituals, mm-hmm. right? You, so there's, I, there's 15 the million people. Amazing. Sorry, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask you. There's there's 15 million people. Um, you said that are represented by the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, how many of them do you think are? Uh, down with this and how many do you think once they are taught what this means and once someone shows them what things like resolution nine mean and what critical race theory is and how it is incompatible uh will 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 stand up and have the courage to push it out and um and fight against it is it you know 
my suspicion is it's actually a small minority of that 15 million people that actually like this and 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 push mm -hmm. it. Yeah, so I, I think that like the best way to divide it up is that there's the committed progressives who are ideologically committed to making Marxism the religion of the SBC. And then I think there's a big, huge, mushy middle. And then there are some ardent conservatives. Um, I think if you ask most, mo the vast majority of Southern Baptists in the pew have no time for this stuff. Like, absolutely not. They're, they're, they, they, they know enough poor white people to know that white privilege is a canard. They, they, they're able to understand why systemic racism is ridiculous. Um, the thing that, like, the reason that the SBC institutionally has gone so liberal is because the conservative people might, like, go on Facebook and say, hey, I think what Russell Moore just said is ridiculous, or hey, I think the B on a relay is off the reservation here. But they don't show up. And so what's happened is that the left has taken over the SBC by showing up. They, they're the people who come to the annual conventions and they vote for the SBC president. And then the SBC president appoints the, all the committees and appoints the trustees and he installs liberals. That's what's happened is that it's basically the conservative resurgence in reverse where the, the liberals have, have won the presidency and now they're installing their people. Um, and so if what we need, if, you, if you're a Southern Baptist here within the sound of my voice, your job is to go to your pastor and talk to him about critical race theory and say, this is a threat to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let's get 20 people from our church and go to the meeting. Let's go to the annual convention and let's vote down these liberal presidents. That's what has to happen. They have to sh we, we have to show up and vote. It's not, yeah. it's not rocket science, <laughs> but, and but that's what's needed. It's, it's interesting because that's exactly what we just got to do an interview with James Lindsay, who mm -hmm. is an atheist, but he also offers a lot of arguments. He talks about the Marxist roots of this ideology, he offers a, right. a lot of arguments against it. And we asked him at the end, like, give us some words of hope, kind of like, what can people do? And that was his takeaway as well. As he said, you know, the people pushing this ideology show up, they get on the school board, mm -hmm. they go yep. to the city council meetings, they get on the city council Right. They go to you like you're talking about. They go to the convention, the Southern Baptist Convention. They actually they make an effort. They sign petitions. They do, and so people pushing back have to do the same. I completely agree. And yeah. what a great idea is! Hey, if it hasn't infiltrated your church yet, make sure your church is inoculated against it. Ask to have a meeting with your pastor, like yep. you're saying, and talk about what this is yeah. at its roots. I mean, here's the way I always define it. If there's anyone new who's watching this, is like. I don't even use liberalism. I, I know you're using it and maybe in a little bit different sense, too, is like liberal interpretation of the Bible. Right. Um, I don't even use liberalism in the political sense because I'm a liberal, but I am no longer a leftist authoritarian. Yeah. I try and separate the two. Mm -hmm. And I really want conservatives to see it's it's not just some old liberal versus conservative left right. right thing. It's not. We are the I view the liberals as conservative liberals and conservatives are united. We have a lot more in common with mm -hmm. each other than we do with leftist authoritarians. It absolutely. is yeah, absolutely. So if you're talking about it with your preacher, it's like the easiest way to describe it is it is a form of Marxism, mm -hmm. a mutated form of Marxism based around identity and power rather than around class and wealth. So it's like you're, yeah. I, it, it, we, we, they say we should look at the world as a struggle between identity groups for power, and they want to redistribute power. And that is 
incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, the, the, Jesus doesn't tell you to go around looking at the the world with this identity lens and as different power, bit different groups fighting over power. Right. Yeah. So, it's amazing because yeah, like most people don't know this, but there were like there was a time where the Jews got together and they were going to make Jesus king, like of the of that time, <laughs> and he's like, oh. no. Not, I'm not going to do it. My kingdom is not of this world. And that's what he said. Yeah. And, Interesting. And I think what it was, if I remember right, like the story is that like they tried to um, grab him and install him as king. And he like basically like walked through them so, like supernaturally. And was like, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that there's no, there's no record in, in scripture of the church becoming the state or like, taking over the state in like the strictest possible sense. Yeah. Um, like Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my followers would fight for me. If he was, if he was here to lead a political revolution, he would have done it. He didn't yeah. want to, that was not what he, like he told Peter to put down a sword and he, and he put the guy's ear back on. Right. Um, and uh, the story here, if you're not familiar, is that like Peter drew his sword when, the, when they were arresting Jesus and chopped off, one of the guards ears and, and Jesus told him, put a sword away and, and put the guy's ear back on. Um, and, and that's, that's what Jesus' message was, is he, that he was here to save souls. Like he, he, he's the Messiah because he saved his people from their sins, not from oppressive systems that, that are invisibly racist. Like that's not the deliverance that he came to bring. Yeah. And, and what this comes down to in many ways, like the Marxist syncretism, it's, it's a utopian fantasy. It's the desire to have what can only happen through the second coming of Jesus Christ. Because we know that Jesus is going to come back on the white horse, and he's going to come down, and he's going to reign in justice and peace and righteousness. And that, that is the end of history. They're trying to have that happen now without Jesus. And that's why this movement is so dangerous to the gospel, because they're trying to do what only Jesus can do without him. And and that's that can only end disaster. It, every utopia that's ever been started has failed because utopia can't exist apart from the presence of God. No, it's I again. I'm a new believer, so if I get this wrong, just correct me. Yeah, no. So I'm thinking. I'm thinking of a Bible verse where, um, uh, it was basically saying that as believers you're not called to go out and judge non-believers and tell them what their sins are, but that you're judged, you're called to judge your brother in Christ, fellow Christians. And if your fellow Christian is stumbling or sinning that you should, you should let them know. And am I, am I remembering this verse, right? Or am I getting it wrong? Uh, that sounds like a rough paraphrase of first Corinthians five, um, where he says like, um, do I judge those outside the church? No. Um, but within you and within your midst purge the evil one from among you um right. remove the leaven before it leavens the law so there, there is a yes. sense in which yes our opportunity or our, our obligation is to um is to enforce and and demand some, some level of doctrinal and like lifestyle purity from the people within the church and our our obligation to demand that sort of thing from unbelievers is not there in the same way right okay so that's what i was thinking of because i'm thinking of like if this is in your church and you do believe in in that scripture, it, mm -hmm. it is your duty to 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 talk about it and to call it out just as you would any other sin. If you were to see your brother stumbling in the church and 
engaging in a type of sin that you think because calling out the sin also is not this hateful judgmental thing it's this like i love you therefore i love you enough to tell you the truth about what you're doing and why it's unhealthy for you yeah. and um why it's a sin and 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 so i i see like as a as a christian like it's even more Im- important to like call, to call it out when you see it in the church Mm-hmm. Even before you call it out in the world, I mean, do yeah. that too. But if it is taking root where you worship, yeah, like, yeah, anyway. yeah. And, and, um, and to that point, um, I, I think we ought to understand that what cancel culture and and this new Mar- neo Marxism is is it, it very much functions like a drug, mm-hmm. like like that. That's what people. Like, what people don't understand is that what makes social media addictive is the high of moral superiority. And so what, what Marxism is, is doing is, is it's delivering high doses of moral superiority that you haven't earned. So Christianity teaches that you literally become sanctified and you become more like Jesus through suffering. Marxism says, nope, you can just adopt some Marxist ideology and you can be virtuous right now. And so people are taking the easy way. Um, and, and, and so what it's doing is it, it's delivering this, this high of moral superiority. And that's so we can get on social media and we can cancel that person who, who's not up on the new lingo because the lingo is always changing, of course. Um, and we're going to cancel him and we're going to look down on him and we're going to say, oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like that Pharisee or the, the tax collector over there. Yes, right? I right? know right? that there's verse. There's a verse that the parable that Jesus tells is that like the Pharisee, prayed, oh God, I think you're not like that tax collector. I tithe and, and I do all these good works and I give to the poor. And it's like, how much so does that arrogant. sound? It's how so much arrogant. Sound? Yeah, how much does that sound exa- like exactly what we're talking about here? Is We have these people who are saying, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like those white evangelicals that voted for Trump. And that's what they're doing. And and so I think we, we need to understand that Marxism in many ways functions as a kind of drug. And we should treat it like any other drug. If you have someone who is addicted to a drug, don't you get in their face and say, this is an emergency, you need to stop right now? Like, shouldn't we have an intervention? And, and that's, that's the, the problem is that we, we've taken Marxism and we've placed it in the political sphere, as uh, many Christians have. It, it, we've put it in the political sphere and, and, and viewed it as this thing that you can do within, within Christian liberty and not recognize that it's much closer to being a drug. Um, and we should respond to it like we do any other drug. And, and so one other point I'll make on, on this is that um, I actually posted about this on Facebook last night, that the best predictor of someone leaving the faith is adopting liberal, politi- like pro- especially progressive Marxist political views. It's the best predictor. And because what it does is Marxism creates oppressor classes and oppressed classes. And it just happens that the Christians are in the oppressor class. And Muslims are in the oppressed class, or or unbelievers, or atheists, or whoever it is. Um, and so, and especially homosexuals. Like you would be amazed the the wild things that so many liberals believe about Mike Pence. That's on the side, but um, as it relates to homosexuals, they think he wants to like hook them up to like electroshock therapy to to shock the gay out of them. Like that's a real thing that lots of Marxist Christians believe. Um, anyway, but, I think I've uh, heard that he doesn't want to do that. What? <laughs> he doesn't want to do that. Oh, that's, that's crazy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, anyway, but that's 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 what I, it's a good illustration of the fact that like they take Christians and they they make them cartoon villains. 
Like that's what Marxism does is is the bad guys in the Marxist narrative are Christians and white people. And and as it turns out right now, the people who believe the Bible the most are, are white evangelicals. Like that that's the group. And um once you decide that the Christians and the people who believe the Bible are the bad guys and they're what's wrong with America, you're not gonna be a, a Christian very long because you're not you don't want to have to identify with those people anymore. And as soon as you like define your uh as soon as you define moral virtue as political activism in favor of the oppressed and against the oppressor class, which would be Christians again, you you realize that everything you like about Christianity at this point, you've moved so far to the left that the only things you like about Christianity are the political activism stuff. And you can get all of that from Black Lives Matter. And so you leave the faith and you, you stop believing in God. Like Marxism is a is a, tr a train that's on a track that only goes out of the faith. And and I really think that, like, we're at a point now where we need to recognize that once you adopt Marxist ideology as a Christian, you're not going to be a Christian very long. And so if the Lord doesn't take you home soon, you're going to leave the faith. And we need to view it as an emergency. And we need to respond to it as an emergency. And we need to, we need to say that, like, these people, like, we don't just resist them because we reject their politics, though we do. We reject them because they're leading people away from Jesus. And our goal as Christians is to bring people to, to Jesus. You know, one thing that you, you know, that you've said here about treating it like a drug, which I really like, is um, the in something that we've noticed before about this ideology. And I don't know if I would say it's maybe it's all Marxism. I haven't thought about it. We were just thinking about it in the context of like the, the current stuff. So um, I'll uh -huh. stick to that. But uh, it's a it's an explicitly anti introspective ideology. So if you think about um, the way I think about Christianity and a lot of religions is that um, they're about self-improvement. Like, especially modern Christianity, mm -hmm. people have individual relationships with God. Their relationship to God yeah. is about their their own sin, is their own issue between them and God. It's not, it's not uh, you know, it's not some, something that, you know, loved ones might get involved, but their job isn't to just... Uh, point their religion outward all the time without ever pointing it inward. It's primarily in an inward-facing uh, belief system that may manifest itself in behavior as well, but right. it's, it's an inward-facing belief system that's designed to, uh, to really make you a better person. And mm -hmm. something that strikes us, uh, Carrie and I have both talked about this, is this the social justice ideology, the the whatever you want to call it, some a form of neo-Marxism, is actually quite the opposite. The answer never lies within self-improvement. It never lies with looking at your own heart or your own sin, except to the extent that you feel guilty um, about yeah. stuff yeah. that's not your fault. Like, so if you happen to have the wrong skin color, you're, you're welcome to feel yeah. guilty about that. But, but you're not really supposed to be improving yourself. You're instead supposed to be running around pointing the finger at everyone else, telling them these are the things that you guys have to do. You're wrong. Right. Which, which, by the way, even that, even the, the it tells you to feel guilt about things that are out of your control and that you didn't do, even that lets you off the hook. Because there right. are things that you can't, you didn't do and you can't control. Mm -hmm. So it's like, here, feel guilty about these things that you don't actually have any control over and have nothing to do with you individually. Right. Instead of feeling guilty about things that you could fix or gives you a you've false done. outlet yeah. for your guilt, right? Yeah. 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 Um, so if you want a, 
a, a biblical passage about everything you're saying here, just read Matthew 23. Okay. I would even recommend it. Carter, you'll enjoy it. It's, 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 it's wonderful. It, it's so great. So Matthew 23 is where Jesus just lowers the boom on the hypocritical <laughs> Pharisees. Uh, he, so basically what had been happening, so in the narrative, um, Jesus had been saying things that made the Pharisees mad, but like kind of holding back a little bit because he was basically, what he decides to do in, Math, in Matthew 23 is say all the things that will get them to kill him. Wow. And he, 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 he just throws it all down. And so one of the things he says is that what you do is you you tithe. Uh, so tithing is where you give to the church and give to the poor, right? Um, he says you tithe out of your mint and your cumin. He, he's saying that like these people are so fastidious about these small, insignificant um, laws that that they're tithing out of their spice rack is what they're doing. Mm. And and he's like, but what you're doing is you're straining gnats and you're swallowing camels. You're neglecting the weightier matters of the law, like justice and righteousness. And so this is what, what drives me crazy, is that we have these, these, these liberal Christians who are looking down on evangel white evangelicals who voted for Trump and saying, I am morally superior to you because I didn't vote for that, that person, that man who says mean things. And I'm just like, the, the, the nat straining is amazing. Like, sure, Trump says lots of bad things, and he used to say horrible things. But your party has slaughtered 60 million innocent children. Like, <laughs> the, the camel swallowing is just overwhelming here. I mean, how do you, like, how do these people say these things with a straight face? I, I just, I don't understand it. Um, and so what, what they're doing is they're, they're, they're basically nitpicking Christians um, while, they, while they themselves are carrying out great historical evils. I mean, abortion is a world historical evil. It's one of the worst things that's ever happened in human history. And it's been perpetrated exclusively and protected exclusively by the Democratic Party. So th this idea, and now the Democratic Party is, is demanding that to be taxpayer funded. So this idea that you are a better Christian if you vote for taxpayer funded mass murder over the guy who says mean things is just insane. If you're a Christian who says, I can't support Trump because he says mean things or whatever, like that's, I mean, we can have a conversation about whether that's wise or not. But if you go all the way to voting for Biden, who is running on state-funded genocide, like, you've lost any claim to the moral high ground. Like, like you have none left. I, I think sometimes the, the problem here is that, um, I, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot. You've got people who are, like Scott Adams says, watching two different movies. Yes. And, and sometimes I'm at a loss of how to even talk to people who um, I believe are watching the wrong movie because all of their foundational beliefs, it goes so deep that I don't know where to even start. I don't know if I'm like, can this bridge even be crossed? Mm -hmm. So for example, those people who think that you're immoral for it or that someone's immoral for voting for Trump, mm -hmm. I think it's more than just, they don't, it, they don't just view him as someone who says mean things. Yeah. They view him as, so, so you just did a great job of just explaining your perspective. I view you guys as supporting the murder of millions of babies. Yeah. Okay, so they they would probably say, well, I view you guys as supporting someone who is ushering in uh, racism yeah. and exploitation of children, putting children in cages. Yeah. And I view you as someone who someone who singularly uh, by the power that somehow he's so powerful, this one man, he's yeah. it, he's ushering in 
all of these evil things. And that's why. So it's it's almost the same thing. It's coming from a place where they're like, this is so evil. How can you do it? And you're saying, yeah. but I see this over here is so evil. How could you support that? And how do you bridge that gap with people? If, if they're Christians and you have and you're and you you share a belief in in Jesus Christ in in the gospel how do you even is there enough is there enough common ground there to help explain like what you're trying to say to them and vice versa or are well, we at a loss yeah, so the, what you have to do is you have to get these people to let their christianity drive the car and not be a passenger in where they're going cuz with most of those people christianity's not driving the car it's just along for the ride and okay. and so, like, what, what determines how they see the world and how they behave themselves is not what the Bible says. It's what critical race theory says. It's what Marxism says. It's about oppressor oppressed. Like, it, until you get them to see what their their own unstated assumptions are and and, and what where they're getting their ethics, until you get them to see, like, what they're even doing, you, you can't bridge the divide. You have to get them to understand that like what is driving the train is their Marxist view of the world. They don't have a Christian worldview, even if they're in some sense Christian. They they're not viewing the world through the lens of scripture. They're viewing it through the lens of Marx. There's a book my friend just book. my friend just sent me. Have you heard of this book? Um, it's it's called like something like Taking Jesus Off the Second Floor. Taking Jesus Off the Second Floor. Yeah. No, I don't think I've ever heard of it. So, um, who's it by? Uh, let me just look it up real quick. It, it it basically so my friend is Orthodox Christian, or she just became Orthodox, and okay. it's a really quick read. But it was it was about how, um, and I would definitely recommend it. It was about how a lot of Christians live as if this world is like the first floor, and there's this second floor in the house that we're going to go to one day where Jesus reigns, and that, mm-hmm. um, and the idea of the book was like. Jesus created this kingdom. Like you can't relegate God there. You have to live through God's word every day. Basically it was like, take him off the second story and bring him down, you know, like (laughs) into your everyday life. Or as you're saying, let your Christianity drive the car instead of putting your Christianity in the back seat. Right. (laughs) I said, put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. She, she, I started talking a little bit more about God or, not very much. I mean, I guess I do a little more than I used to, Carter. Carter was the one that outed me as a Christian when we were doing the podcast. I wasn't even out as a Christian at first. But That's then I true. got more I did. Sorry. That is, Sorry. Although, that? wait, can I can I just interject something really quickly about this? Yeah. As an atheist, I want to share yeah. this with both of you. Um, yeah. I, I'm an atheist because I take the ideas of religion extremely seriously. And I don't have a lot of respect for people who claim to be Christian and don't take their ideas seriously. So if you want the rest of the world to take yourself se- like be taken seriously, um, what you're what what you're describing, Tim, is like if Christianity is not driving, why the hell should I pay attention to you? You're not even yeah. living your life according to the things that you claim are so important. If you want people to take you seriously, take yourself seriously. Take your beliefs seriously. Yeah. That I can respect. That I can respect. Yeah. Um, so a couple things I would say, um, in response to that is that one, I think there are a lot of people who are, um, maybe it's not, not as many as a percentage in America, but I mean, goodness gracious, you should read about the Chinese Christians and what those people are sacrificing for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will take your breath away. Read about the, the Christians in Nigeria and Uganda who are being persecuted. Read about the, the, the people who are paying a price 
to be Christians. Um, the first Christians were literally fed to lions. Um, and I, so, I guess I'm yeah, more I, focused I think, on the West where they're not really. Yeah. Yeah. But they're not paying the price. Not yet. Um, I, I, I would say that we're already at a point now where being a Christian is a major social liability um, because you can be canceled for it. I mean, goodness gracious. Like it was a major scandal because Mike Pence's wife teaches at a Christian school that believes Christian things. Like that was a big deal. Yeah. Um, and like there, there, a guy at my church, he was a a, a teach a high school teacher in um, in one of the local schools here, and he was fired because he won't use transgender pronouns and won't affirm transgender identity. Um, and so yeah, like we're we're getting to the point now where like there's a social cost to it, but. Yeah, it, there are a lot of Christians paying the price. And, but I will say, like, your your point is sound that, like, if you're going to say that I believe the God of the universe became a man and died on a cross for my sins, like, that should change the way you live. That should Absolutely. that should drive everything that you do in life. And and what's happened is that we have there that we have weak need pastors who lack the who lack the guts to say to tell their people that they need to start living out what they say they believe. Like, and, and, and the problem is in the pulpits. The problem is we have these pastors who who aren't willing to say they've already retreated on so many issues. I mean, it used to be a big deal for a, a Christian person to get divorced. And the Bible is really clear on divorce. If you read, it, it is not a mystery what God thinks about divorce. He says outright, I hate divorce. And so not that like there are no exceptions and that hard cases don't exist. They, they do. But we have lots of, of professing Christians who are getting divorced for the, the worst possible, most insignificant reasons, and nothing is happening to them at their churches. And it's such a profoundly unloving thing on the beh- behalf of their pastors, because by their own theology, these pastors believe that someone who um, gets divorced and remarried illegitimately is committing adultery. And the Bible says that people who commit adultery go to hell. And so these people are putting their souls in jeopardy, and the, the watchmen, the shepherds, are doing nothing about it. And, and that's what it comes down to. Like, everything you're talking about here is that we, we, we have pastors who are not willing to say what God says on these issues that someone might get offended about and that might cause someone to leave the church and stop giving to the author. And, and we have these, these pastors who have a CEO mindset for, for ministry, and it's like every part of it's wrong. We, we need to go back to like being willing to be like John the Baptist, like the, the, the guy who eats locusts literally <laughs> and, uh, and is out in the wilderness, like saying that um, everyone needs to repent of their sins. Like G- Jesus, like most people don't know this. Jesus is like lowly and, and meek and mild in, in one sense, but like the first words out of Jesus's mouth, when he began his ministry, he said, repent because the kingdom of heaven is here. He was calling people to stop sinning and turn away from their sin from day one, from the first sentence out of his mouth when he began his ministry. And this idea that you can be a Christian or a pastor especially without calling people to repent of their sins is outrageous. But it's also very widespread because there's this idea that we should just love people where they're at. And it's like, well, yeah, but if you have someone who's addicted to math, like you should you, you tell them to stop doing math. That's what love is in that situation. And so if you believe that someone is living a lifestyle that's going to destroy them, that's going to destroy their soul and send them to hell, that's going to bring the eternal wrath of God down upon them, 
you have to get involved and you have to you have to be confrontational and say you must stop doing this because it will destroy you that's what love is in that situation and we've let love become the sentimental fuzzy right right R- rather than just love being this is how i feel love is this is how yes. i behave because i love you love is a choice and it's work to like okay Right. You're addicted to heroin, so I'm going to lock you in this room and get you some methadone and, or whatever it is. Like, that's <laughs> right. love, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. Not just saying, well, I love you. Keep it up. Good luck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I use drugs because everyone can see that drugs enslave you. You, you. you no longer have freedom in a really important sense if you are addicted to drugs. You have become a slave to that drug. It is your master. And... This is what, what most people don't understand, what, and, and I think that most Christians even don't understand, is that sin is slavery. Jesus said it, it, that anyone who sins is a slave to sin. And so what we need to do is we need to, like Christians need to transform their whole d- idea of sin into, I, I'm not calling someone to repent of their sin because I'm a mean, um, puritanical, inquisitorial um, person. I'm doing that. Because I want them to be free. Preaching the gospel of repentance, which is the Christian gospel, is liberation from sin, because sin is slavery. And that's that's what Christianity teaches, that, that the liberation that Christ came to accomplish was liberation from the slavery of sin. And, and that's, again, why Marxism can't be reconciled, to bring it all back. That's why Marxism can't be reconciled with Christianity, because Marxism proclaims that liberation is casting off the 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 hegemony of the oppressor class and the, the, the rule and installing the rule of the proletariat or the oppressed class, or in this case, people of color. Um, but that's not the Christian program. The Christian program is that we are all slaves to sin and Christ came and on the cross, he bore our sin and he defeated sin on the cross. So that death no longer has power over us. Sin no longer has power over us. We are no longer slaves to sin. So we don't have to walk in that way anymore. And there's a, there's a, I think this is not unique to Christianity in the West, but there's a lack of courage in the West to stand up and say some of the things that you're saying and oppose the cultural pressure to got kind of go along with, uh, with what everyone else says. And there's this perception that you need to be Mm -hmm. nice, which I've heard you say on a podcast. I don't, I, I don't know if it was you or if it was the person that was talking to you, but uh <laughs> nice isn't a requirement right yeah i was on this the stasios podcast yeah. it was it's called no apologies with uh carmen Schober, which i also recommend that podcast but um yeah it, it it's very much what, what we've done the, the, this is the problem with with marxism it like so much of this comes down to we we are using biblical words like the marxists use biblical words they, they say love your neighbor they say um, do justice. They, they quote that verse in Amos, let, let justice flow down like waters. But what they do is they use a false religions dictionary to define those words, not the Bible. The Bible tells us what justice is. It shows us what justice looks like. And it's not Marxism. But what they've done is they've, they've, they've taken these biblical categories and evacuated them of all their biblical uh, frameworks and inserted Marxism into the void. Um, well, as Carter says, if, if, if social justice were about justice, it would just be called justice. Right. <laughs> you don't need the qualifier. Yeah. 
That's yeah. like how they they call uh, they have a. I don't, I'm sure you've heard this by now. They radical kindness is what they call their bullying and harassment. It's like yeah, oh, wow. it's, yeah. I have so not you, heard that. Actually. Well, you've That's... learned a new one. Radical kindness is not about kindness. Right. <laughs> it is amazing to me, like how good these people are at marketing. And Orwell called it right. The ministry, yeah. the, like their their fake news propaganda organization, was the Ministry of Truth. Their torture agency was the Ministry of Love. Yeah. Right? <laughs> in 1984, it's literally like, the place where they take you to co- torture you is the Ministry of Love, and and, and it's, it's just amazing that like how like do these people just not read Orwell? Like how do they fall for Antifa? Well, they're just anti-fascist. How do they fall for Black Lives Matter? They're just saying Black Lives Matter. No, they're not. That's a misnomer. Or they, they now they crazy. call their um their racism, they call it anti racism. I'm like, but yeah. it's still racism. You've just yeah. named it anti racism. <laughs> <laughs> like, um I have a I have one I, I don't want to keep you too long, but I have one um final question for you. Uh and maybe Carter has another. But I was reading about so I've I've still learning about all this, about the intrusion into the church. And I just recently learned about like the uh, prosperity gospel and we got to do a conversation with Tim, with Tim Dukeman. No, we're doing that one now. We got to do a conversation with Paul Vander Clay and he was kind of, from his point of view, comparing the prosperity gospel and the social justice gospel as both being perversions of the word. And from his point of view, sounds like you would agree. So one of the things I recently learned about was this, this uh, pastor, Darren Patrick, uh, he was a fired megachurch preacher in St. Louis mm-hmm. who recently passed away. I think he, yeah, he just committed suicide. And oh, yeah, I heard about this. You heard about this guy? Mm-hmm. And so I read a couple articles about him, and, and there were two things that stood out to me, two quotes from two different articles. Um, one, he said, so he, the reason he was fired uh, back when was because he had had inappropriate um, relationships with women or was trying to, inappropriate communications or something. And um, he, like a lot of these megachurch pastors, he had, or maybe even the prosperity gospel ones, like he had built this whole social, just not social, social media presence, social media presence. And he was like selling books and stuff. And he was really, had developed an online persona. And he says, I quote, I was spending a lot of energy creating and sustaining my image, he told uh, a podcast host. It's so subtle. I am trying to influence people for the gospel. You have to have a social media presence. You have to speak at conferences. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it says, Patrick said that he eventually became isolated from many of his friends when he was pastoring at Journey Church, quote, I stopped pursuing friendships, he said. Another way to say that, I stopped being known, being known by my fellow men. And that was the beginning of the end, end quote. And then and then from a different article, this is someone talking about him after he recently committed suicide. It's ironic. Most of the pastors that I had to remove, I did with great regret because they were some of the most effective and creative pastors said Williman, a professor at Duke Divinity School who teaches church leadership. Quote, it was kind of their creativity and innovative spirit that got them into trouble. Mm. So I'm reading these quotes because I was I was thinking about how sometimes our, do you think it's the case that like the, the, the sin of ego or the problem, if you're not a Christian, the problem of ego, you still think mm-hmm. ego is a problem, hopefully. Yeah. Um, the problem of ego is, is maybe that sometimes you're, uh, whatever, whatever way in which you're talented or whatever your gifts are, mm-hmm. are sometimes you're blinded to the fact that those things can also be the root of your problem. 
The right. very thing that you're that makes you gifted or that makes you a good and if you're a Christian makes you a good uh, servant of God because mm-hmm. you're maybe you're talented in this way of being charismatic and and bringing people into the faith or maybe you're a good author or whatever it is a good speaker right. um, that those things can set you up for failure as well if you're not careful. Can you speak yeah. to that just a little bit? Because I I was I'm really interested in that. Yeah, um, I, this is this issue is actually directly addressed in the the fir- book of First Corinthians, the first couple of chapters. Um, okay. Yeah, so what Paul says is that when you were called by Christ, not not many of you, most of you were not of noble birth, most of you were not rich, most of you were not esteemed in the world, and, and he says that he even says that God has has taken the the fools of the world and and used them to shame the wise. And, 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 the, and so what, what he does, and th- you see this all through the Bible, like the whole narrative of Scripture is that God wants all of the glory and all of the credit. So he will take people who are bad at things and empower them to do it. Right? I love that verse, by the way. It helped me see Trump in a whole new light. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think there's some, like, in some ways, Trump is God's mercy to us. Um, in other ways... I hope he gets saved. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but yeah, like that's what that's what that's what God does. That's His way. Is He takes the He takes the weak and and He defeats He uses them to defeat the strong. He, he like there's a story in the Old Testament where um, this guy was trying to like the Israelites had been conquered by a, a neighboring nation and they were being oppressed, and so God raised up this man to deliver them, and. Um, he, he had 10,000 men in his army, and God says, that's too many. You need to send all anybody who's scared, send them home. Anybody who, and then he has them, like, go to a, a, a creek and drink, and, and the ones who drank the wrong way were all sent home, which was almost all of them. Um, and so he ends up with, a, with a, a band of 300 people, and they go off and win the, and win the battle with 300 men. Wow. Yeah, they were the original 300, but... Um, <laughs> so wait, so what's the point of that story? I'm just a little yeah, slow right. on this one. So basically, if, if if God let him go into battle with 10,000, then he could tell himself, well, we just had 10,000 men, and I'm a great military commander. So that's why we won the battle. And, mm-hmm. and, and God does not give him that option. He's like, you're sending 97% of your army home, <laughs> and we're going to fight with 300 men, and we're going to win. And they did. That's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for that. I don't know. Yeah. I just I, the Bible I, is such a, a resource for so many of these questions. Like it really, it really does. Like the, there's a verse in and in, in uh, First Timothy where it says that like that that scripture is uh, is profitable for teaching, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped. That it has everything we need is is in the Bible in some way, and we just have to go find it. Well, Carter's heard me say this before, but definitely when I became a Christian, I, I was I, there was a verse that really stuck out to me that made me cry the first time I read it because I felt like this it really, it really resonated with me, and it was a verse about how I've since seen it in the Bible and other places too. It wasn't just the one place. It was about how God said, "I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will steer you back on the path." And I, that really resonated with me because I'm so stubborn, and I'm the last person I ever would have thought would have become a Christian, and mm-hmm. it really like had to be steered here and right. have to be continually sometimes steered back on the path. Yeah. And um, 
And and so one of the things I said to Carter, though, was that when I actually sat down and started reading the Bible and, and when my mind became open enough to try and look at what Jesus said and see what I thought about it, because my mind had been really closed off to it. A lot of people on the left think their mind is open. It's not. My mind was very close about some things. Right. But when it became open enough to look at the Bible, I was like, oh, like like you're saying there's a lot of information. And I was like, oh, wow, like you can kind of look at this as just a save it will save you a lot of trouble it's if i had read if i had tried to live according to the way jesus said i would have saved myself a lot of pain and heartache and trouble (laughs) i'm like it's just sort of it still makes me laugh because it's like but you know some people insist on learning things the hard way and i was one of those people yeah i I would challenge you if you haven't read the bible cover to cover you you need to do it as soon as possible okay i should do that it is so so rich and there's so much there and you're gonna read stuff and be like holy cow um, even just like, oh, that's where that 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 saying comes from. Like so much of our language, the, by far the most important book for the English language is the King James Bible. The King James Bible, in many ways, created the English language. Um, and so you're going to find stuff that you're like, wow, I had no idea that came from the Bible. And you're going to see how the way that God sets up the church and sets up the Old Testament uh, covenant community drives so much of of modern development. There's, it's not an accident that the West was barbaric until the West became Christian. It's not an accident that freedom reigned in the West first because the West was Christian. The, there, there's a book called Dominion by Tom Holland that I highly recommend. I think you, it's I on think my you, shelf behind me, actually. Oh, yes. Read that. Read yes. that book because Christianity <laughs> completely changed everything about how people see the world and the influence of Christianity. And this is the amazing thing. The Marxists talk about how, well, the West is so bad because America had slavery. But America is the is was one of the first countries in the world to get rid of slavery. Like we're only talking about this because of Christianity. The only reason that like that the problems in America, the problems in the West were corrected was because of Christianity, was because the West was different. And and, and the, the the great art and culture that was created in, in like Notre Dame wasn't built in communist Russia. Notre Dame was built in Christianized France, and there's a reason for that. And and so, yeah, I would highly recommend re- read the Bible. I think the- I th- I think also the book, the second book you recommended there, the Tom Holland book. I think Paul Vanderclay recommended that too. He did. Oh, you, you, it's, yeah. it should be required reading. It's it's very important. Um, cool. Yeah. But yeah, it, it it's really like if you don't understand how Christianity influenced history, you don't understand history. Because Christianity completely changed the world. Like, there's like part of its convention, but like there's a good reason that we are in the year 2020, and we date <laughs> we date back to the coming of Christ because that's the kind of seismic shift that happened when Jesus came. Um, but he 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 literally changed the world. Um, so yeah, I, I I highly recommend even people who aren't Christians should read the whole Bible cover to cover just to like understand the world they live in. And understand where these things came from. Carter, I think, has read it. I've read it about six times, maybe. But oh, nice. Okay, good. But it was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. But uh, you know, uh, you're right. There's a lot of phrases that we just say normally that are just part of you know normal speech and a lot of concepts. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is one of the things that helps me to appreciate. As an atheist, helps me appreciate the roots of the West in Christianity. I've, I mean, I haven't read Dominion yet, and I'm not an expert on on history, so I don't want to, uh, 
you, you know, I can't make a counter argument other than to say, uh, I do, I look at this, I look at the West and I say, well, Christianity may have been a necessary but not sufficient condition because Christianity was around for a while before something happened to Christianity. And I'm not sure I totally understand what it was. And I certainly, I know mm -hmm. some of the philosophers, but something happened that I don't understand from the Christian historical perspective yet. I'm trying to. Yeah. I would say the Reformation, but my, my that will be my guess, but yeah. That. yeah. Um, yeah, I think the Reformation was very important because what the Reformation did was it decentralized power in the church instead of it being the Pope is the guy and he hands down decrees from on high. It's it then became oh, that in the printing press where p individual people had the Bible. That was that was world changing was re regular people being able to read the Bible. Because many people before the printing press were illiterate, and the Bible is not translated in their language. Um, and so the Reformation brought the Bible to the masses. And that's where you started seeing so many of the things that happened through the Enlightenment were a product of the fact that regular people had the Bible. And so the spiritual authority was dispersed in many ways, because uh, one man with the Bible on his side is, is a majority at this point. And that, right. that had never happened. Right. And I think the individualist ethic of the Enlightenment was, was at, at the very least inspired by, if not derivative of, the what you're saying, which is that people had, when, when regular people have access to um, uh, their own personal set of morals and belief systems that they can interpret themselves and read, and, and it's separate right. from the king, suddenly the idea of the divine right of kings doesn't make a lot of sense, because what the hell does he know? I've got the same thing written right in front of me. Why am I following mm -hmm. some leader? Yeah, yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of truth to that. Um, and Christianity, I would say, with the Reformation, did become a much more individualized religion, um, as opposed to it being entire nations being converted um, all at once, um, which you did see in Europe before the Reformation, you saw individual people being converted. Um, and, and I would say also that the, the spread of, of the gospel through regular people having the Bible completely changed. Like, that's, that's what made things like the abolition of slavery possible, was because everyday people could read the Bible. And they read Philemon and it says, like, receive him not back, not as a slave, but as a brother. And, and, and like, there's, there's verses in the Bible where, in the New Testament, where he says, like, masters, you need to treat your slaves well, because you have a master who will judge you if you do not. And um, that, that flipped everything on its head, because before that, the, a master could do whatever he wanted to with the slave, and no one would bat an eyelash if he woke up on the wrong side of the bed and just killed a slave that day. Uh, and Christianity said, no, you have a master above you who will judge you if you do not treat them well. And that, that changed everything. And, th and that's why like, people want to say that like, the Bible allows for slavery, and there's a sense in which that's true. But the Bible also puts us on a path where inexorably slavery is going to go away. Because once you, once you follow out that the slave is my brother, there's that hymn, right? Like, um, it's a Christmas carol where it says, like, the slave is our brother. It's it, a holy night. Um, and that, that, that was a Christian hymn it, because these ideas are contained within Christianity. Christianity, in, in, I would say in the same way that like the Declaration of Independence contained the seeds of slavery's destruction, Christianity also did. Um, and and the, all the people in the world who were wanting to abolish slavery 
um, until very recently, were Christians. <laughs> there was no secular anti-slavery movement uh, in, in history. It's just not, it didn't exist. But, but didn't you, I mean, don't you think you needed, like, when I look at it, I think you kind of needed John Locke to articulate individual rights first, because um, w- without that, you end up uh, you end up being able to interpret those verses in the Bible as well. Masters treat your slaves well. Well, that then that means you can mm-hmm. have slaves. And someone someone needed to take what you're saying is the genesis of this. Someone needed to take that and articulate that in a way that uh, made it clear. And I, Locke mm-hmm. is among the philosophers I think who had who did that. No. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I, I would add that John Locke was a committed Christian, right, um, right. and he wrote out of a Christian worldview. Um, and so I think that the idea of individual rights is something that comes from Christianity. And you can read the Old Testament and see it right there. Um, there there's so much, that, like, I mean, the the early American system especially was, was based very consciously on the Ten Commandments and, and based very consciously on how the Old Testament system society was structured. And that's how English common law was developed, was based on biblical principles being worked out over time. Um, it, we didn't get there right away, but we did get there. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that, like, you're right, that, like, it didn't happen immediately, and there had to be some development over time. Um, like, I, I, I think it's important to understand that, like, the, the gospel and, and Christianity is, is kind of like a slow cooker in a lot of ways, that, like, you, you make a lot of progress, you move really far over a long period of time, but day to day, you may not see the differences always. Right. Um, well, I, I don't know if this is heretical. I don't know if it's heretical to say this, but I kind of wish Christianity would like recanonize and pull in some lock and like, okay, we, we made some progress. Can we like make that part of the thing people have to understand? Because otherwise <laughs> people are going to reject it and, and go like, hey, maybe we can mix marks with this. Like, <laughs> I don't... I'm worried about well, Christianity's vulnerability yeah. to this. Um, I think that some of that is happening, I think, over time. Like, what you see, the history of Christian thought is that theology is developed in opposition to heresy. Um, and so when when great heretics arise and, and threaten central doctrines of the faith, I would say Marx is one of them, and, and the, the neo-Marxists are, are as well. Um, in the same way that, like, if you had asked um, an average Christian in 1800 which verses in the Bible condemn homosexuality, for example, he would not be able to quote them for you. But every Christian in 2020, every serious Christian knows which Bible verses condemn homosexuality because we are being pressed on that point. And so that's what I would say is that um, we is that theology gets more developed and richer over time in response to and in opposition to the pressure of of heresy coming in. And so we didn't divine the Trinity until we had heretics in the first few centuries AD who rose up and said wrong things about um, about the Trinity. And so we had councils and said, no, it's the hypostatic union and um, God in, in three persons. And um, and so we had we had the, the Nicene, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles Creed. And we had the, right. the we had Ch- Chalcedonian Christology, like all those things happen in opposition. And so I think that's happening now. The, the problem, and, and I, I think you're, you're getting to this, that the problem is that it always seems to happen a little late. Like, it takes us a while to, like, get all our stuff together, and we, we basically get caught flat-footed, and it takes us years to, like, put together the response to the last problem, and then by the, by the time we get, our, get the last problem figured out, we got a new one. And that's basically what happened here, going back to Marxism, is that 
when I was growing up, I'm 31 years old. Um, when I was growing up, the the main challenge to Christianity was the new atheists. So we we all were were trained and, and taught how to refute Richard Dawkins type arguments. And what happened was is that the new atheists fell apart and the devil By the way, tactics. Thanks to the social Marxist, justice. Yeah. Yeah, social justice also infiltrated the new atheists. <laughs> That's what happened. Yeah, that, that did happen. Oh yeah, there was a really good um uh, Slate Star Codex about that. Um that isn't up anymore because the New York Times are evil people. But <laughs> did you hear about this? Scott Alexander had to he had to delete his whole blog because the New York Times was going to dox him. No. Oh, I yeah. heard something about this. Wait, tell us tell us more. Yeah, this so is Scott just Alexander is the the guy who wrote the the Slate Star Codex blog, which has which had so many beautiful, amazing essays on it. And and I say he's a committed atheist who's bisexual, but I but I, I, I appreciate him so much. Um, but, but the New York Times was writing a story about him, and they were going to dox him. And so he deleted the blog so they couldn't write the story, and they wouldn't have an, uh, it would no longer be newsworthy. He had, he had to delete the blog to stop them from doxing him. Wow. Yeah, it's and really so, sad. So he wrote about the SJW infiltration into atheism? Uh, yeah, he had, an, he had oh. an article where what happened to the new atheists, and he basically said they all just became social justice warriors. Yeah. Um, it was really good. I wish I could link you to it, but it's not up anymore. No, well, um, James, I, th I know James Lindsay and uh, Helen Pluckrose talk about this as well, and I think maybe Peter Bogosian. I think all three of them might talk about it. I, I th at least yeah. James and Peter were involved in the New Atheists during this um, rift, and obviously they came out on the side of uh, <laughs> abandoning them, like social justice warriors won, so they they're no longer part of it, right? Um, right. Uh, I mean, in fairness to Christianity, what you were saying earlier about it being slow to change, um, uh -huh. in fairness, that's probably also a strength because mm -hmm. um, generally, if you've got something that's been working for a long, long time, you ought to be pretty careful about changing it. Um, otherwise... Yeah, Chesterton's best. Yeah, yeah. If you're familiar with Chesterton's uh, analogy. No, okay. I'm not. Uh, yeah, so this is great. Um, so G.K. Chesterton, who I highly recommend, he said so many great stuff, um, but he, he has a quote where he says that um, it, it basically that if you're going to the, the, the revolutionary reformer type of person sees a fence on the road and says, this shouldn't be here. Let's take it down. And he's like, no, actually, wisdom is before you take that fence down, you better figure out why it was put up in the first place. Right. And that, that's Chesterton's fence. And so he uh, like he basically is famous for that argument that um yeah, if something works, like, <laughs> you should really, you need to have a really deep understanding of it before you pull that thing out. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. And th this is what I would say um, about, the, I, and this is why I think the sexual re revolution was so dangerous and, and so destructive, because the sexual revolution basically said, this family unit that we've had for every point in human history until right now, should be torn down. This fence should be torn down. And they had no idea why it was put up. And the results have been catastrophic across across the country and across the world. Um, and we, because the fact is that families are irreplaceable. And, and sometimes societies, like certain things are irreplaceable. Like, and this is why communism failed. Communism failed because it tried to remove things that are irreplaceable and the, the thing won't work without it. And right. so, um, yeah. We, you have to you have to have a really incredibly deep understanding of something before you just start tearing stuff down. I, think that's, I would say some of the 
yeah, some of the things they're trying to, some of the Chesterton fences they're trying to remove would be the concept of free speech, mm-hmm. uh, individuality, logic, reason. Yeah, you know uh, things that they. The, what's going to happen when know, you take out math? Those? Math. <laughs> Did you see the teacher? There was a school teacher who said that like two plus two is four is like a white. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. White ideology. <laughs> yeah. It, it's absolutely. I'm like, please never go near any kind of construction because if you don't believe two plus two equals four, your bridge is going to fall down and people are going to die. And that, that's the thing that, like, ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. And if you, if we embrace the, these, the social justice ideology as a society, people are going to die. Oh, absolutely. And in many yeah. ways, they already are. They yeah. have before. Yeah. Um, and, like, we need to, like, and this, this is not just a mere, like, political argument. Like, this is not some abstract conversation we're having. Like, people are, lives are on the line here. And... Yeah. There are going to be serious consequences. Like Black Lives Matter has no idea what they're doing. When they say defund the police, what they're doing is they're creating war zones in American cities that cops aren't going to want to go into because they don't want to get in trouble. And the people that they're supposedly helping are going to suffer the most because they're, the fact is that like, however bad policing is, it's so much worse to have gangs ruling the streets. And that's, what, that's what's going to happen. I don't think they mean defund the police, though. I'm pretty sure that when they say defund the police, what they mean is they want social justice power structures to control the monopoly on the use of force, and they can't actually infiltrate police departments in the way that they would like to, so they need to tear them down and then build their own social uh, justice-based structure for... They won't call it policing, and but the police will be um, part of that new structure, and therefore they end up with a monopoly on the use of force. I'm pretty sure that's what their yeah, they, goal is. They will call it something like uh, community uplifting right. empowerment the committee, officers. The committee for public safety, perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> right. There's a, there's a French Revolution term that's still available. Um, yeah, yeah, that's funny. That, that, no, I, I agree with you. I, I do think that the, the thing that, that gives me hope um, in in many many dark times, is that we have reality on our side, and like these experiment, these broad social experiments that the, the social justice warriors want to do are going to fail. If they if they ever defunded the police, it would be such a disaster <laughs> that like we would eventually learn our lesson, and they would run up against the hard re- facts of reality at that point. Um, the only and so, thing is how many, like you said, these things don't help the communities or the people they claim to be speaking on behalf of. It's like how much destruction happens along the way until it's declared, yes, this was a failure. But right. how much destruction do, like you said, there are human lives on the line. That, right. that They don't care either. I mean, I've, I've been in threads with some people pushing social justice ideology, and you'll point out like, Look at look at David Dorn or look at this uh, black business owner who who burned in the fire that was set right. in this building. And yeah. they don't care. Yeah. They don't care that people are dying. They la- they do the laugh emoji on things like that. Yeah. It's well, insane. And it's well, like, it's yeah, I mean, and they, and they do like the, the the look, I agree with you that reality in the end, reality wins. So we actually like if we could fast forward a million years, we wouldn't have to debate anything because reality would play itself out like reality wins. Wh- whoever's right. right about reality wins in the end. Yeah. Um, 
But my concern is always like, well, how long does that take? Because 100 million yes. people died with communism last century. Right. And yeah, communism is like kind of maybe sort of recognized as bad by some people now, but uh, it's not, it's right. still not over. The death count's still not yeah. over. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and the largest country in the world is still communist. Right. So, yeah, yeah. no, I, I definitely agree with that. And that's why we can't be, we can't rest on our laurels. We have to fight. Right. And we have to win. Um, there, there, a podcast that I, I really appreciate is called The Causes of Things. It's a Sovereign Nations podcast. If you, ever, if you guys have heard of Sovereign Nations. Um, I haven't. Okay, so they actually, you would appreciate, they, their YouTube channel has, it, it's called the Trojan Horse series, and they talk to Peter Bogosian and James Lindsay. Um, I, I highly recommend those videos. Okay, cool. Called Trojan Horse, Sovereign Nations. Um, but the, uh, so many times the way that he, he, he ends the, the Sovereign Nations podcast is by saying, we must win. Um, and, and just trying to drive home the urgency that, if we don't defeat this ideology, the consequences for the world will be unbelievably catastrophic. We, we may be on the verge of another dark age. Well, and that's yeah. the thing that scares me because another dark age with modern technology is not the, it's not a medieval dark no. age. It is a, no, it it's the worst science fiction dystopia you can possibly imagine. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. The, the, if, if totalitar totalitarianism is going to be so much harder to, to displace it with modern technology than it is now. Yep. It used to be that you could hide a lot more easily and you could speak a lot more freely. Now we, everybody's got a, a camera in their pockets. Yep. Um, yeah. and, and an open and, mic and I, that I, can be actually remotely controlled, which people don't like to talk about, but it can be turned on while your phone's off, everyone. Be aware. Yeah. yeah. And they're coming up with these uh, robot dogs that follow you in the park and report you if you're not socially distancing. Have you read what? about this? Oh. Yes. No. They don't report you. They just remind you to social. They'll report they you soon, you. but they don't okay, yet. Okay, but soon they'll be reporting you. Right now, they, they what are they calling these dogs, Carter? Um, they're in Singapore currently, but they're yeah. Probably some, they're probably calling it something like loving and awesome. Like it's, you know, it's the, <laughs> the, the beautiful reminder puppies. I, it's probably like some <laughs> nice name. I don't know. Oh, Tim, I'm going to send you this article. It's okay, yeah, that sounds mind. good. That's, yeah. That's terrifying and horrifying and also not that surprising, actually, when you think about it. Yeah. Which yeah. is incredibly depressing. Um, but, yeah. No, I... Yeah. I uh, Here's a picture of one. Like, oh, sorry. Can you see it? Holy cow. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, well, I swear that's, maybe that on that on note, we should wrap up, Carrie, now that you've, you've, you've uh, I always like to leave you leaving on a positive terrifying. note. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Tim, for coming. Hey, well, seriously, give us some words of hope. Uh, we have people in our audience who are Christian and non-Christian. We have uh, people who are on the right and the left. Um, what are some words? Do you have any words of hope? Do you have anything you'd like to, a positive note you'd like to end on? Um, yeah. So what I would say, um, and I know Carter's going to disagree with this, but my hope is in, in Jesus and that he's going to come back and he's going to set things right eventually and hopefully soon. Um, and I, I would say beyond that, I think that the, um, the, the hope that we can have like apart from that is that we have the ability to speak the truth in a way 
now that was never possible before. So our enemies are much more powerful than they ever have been in human history. But everyday people also are. We can reach thousands upon thousands of people on the internet now um, in a way that was never possible before. And so they may find that these tools, um, like the, the, the totalitarians may find that these tools that they wanted to wield against us actually destroy them. Mm. Um, and I think that there are lots of examples in history of that happening, and I think it could happen again. And I also think that, um, the, here's the hope I'll, I'll give you, even from a secular standpoint, the, the power that one person can exert if they stand up and say, no, I will not bat, the power that that person can exert on millions of people is incredible. And this is why cancel culture exists. Cancel culture exists because the totalitarians are terrified of us. They have to ratchet up the pressure. They have to ratchet up the consequences of going against them because they know that unless they have full compliance, someone is going to say, that king, that emperor has no clothes. And everyone is going to say, you know what? You're right. Yeah. And the truth is on our side. And if we just stand up and have courage and say, do what you want, I will not say that two plus two equals five. I won't say it. I won't. You can't make me. And if we do that, we can win. And I think we will. I love that. That's Thank great. You, that was inspiring to me. So there, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. <laughs> So um, for those who it's your first time here, this has been an episode of Deprogrammed. Like I said, our guest today is Tim Dukeman. Um, you can follow him on Facebook at timothydukeman.com. Am I saying your last name right? Yeah, Dukeman. Yeah, Dukeman. And yeah. Uh, we'll put all that below in the in the comments. But thank you so much for sharing your time with us today and and your insights. And um, I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah thanks, thanks very coming, much. Jim. You guys have a great day. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy. So go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the cathedral. Pay no attention to it. For your protection, the following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation. Please avoid any contact with these individuals. Twitter tells me there is a 98.2% chance that these are all rushing bots. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. It is not a cult. 
Now please forsake all previous beliefs and stop asking questions. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.